You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. Welcome. We're glad you're here. I want to invite you to grab your Bible and to get ready to study God's Word together. church. Good morning. It's good to see you. Yes. Hi. Wow. Good to see you. And uh, we want to welcome our, our campuses who are joining us, Crystal Lake and Rolling Meadows and Aurora. We're so glad that you're with us coming together for God's word. And uh, we love you guys. And um, I just want to say happy Father's Day to everyone. If you haven't heard it already today, happy Father's Day. Uh, we love the fathers of our church and what a blessing And what a great responsibility it is uh, to be a father, especially as we seek to reflect our heavenly father to our kids. And so I hope that you feel celebrated today, dads. We love you. Happy Father's Day. Well, this morning, I want to let you know that we are starting a new series this morning called Ask Anything. And if you were here last week, you remember that we asked you to ask us Maybe some questions that you have, whether it's about the Bible or doctrine or uh, issues that are coming up in the culture, we, want, we wanted you to ask us some questions. And let me tell you, I looked last night, you asked us some questions. We got a lot of questions, and uh, I'm really excited to be uh, walking through some of those as a church together in sermons. Um, I think last time I looked, we had, we had over 150, maybe close to 200 questions And so uh, our series is only eight weeks long, so you could do the math there. It doesn't quite line up. Um, So we are currently even just brainstorming ways that we can bring answers to uh, a lot of those questions that you've had, whether that's through video or podcast, or we're still still spitballing it. So um, we're hoping to answer as many as we can, and I'm really excited to dive into this um, as a church together, and here's where we're starting. Here's the first, it's not really a question, uh, it's more of a phrase. It is love the sinner, but hate the sin. This is a very popular phrase. Maybe you've heard this, yes? Raise your hand if you have heard or seen this phrase somewhere in your life, like almost everyone, right? It's not a new phrase, but this is a a, a increasingly popular phrase that's being said in, uh, in modern Christianity in this day and age. And maybe you've noticed it, I have certainly noticed it in the past couple of years, this phrase being used more and more and more. And one thing that I've noticed about the phrase is how um, people use it in uh, a wide variety of applications. So some of the people use it in different contexts. And what I mean by that is some people, when they say this phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin, what they mean is they mean that God loves the sinner, but hates the sin. In some cases, they, they say it as in, I love the sinner, but hate the sin, right? And so, in some cases, they mean both. I love the sinner but hate the sin because God loves the sinner and hates the sin. And so those are a couple of the contexts, but there's also a couple of motivations that people use while using this phrase as well. I think that probably the most popular motivation um, is to tell people that God loves them, but he is not um, approving of their actions. That God loves you, but but he's not approving of, of, of your actions. I think some people, though, use this um, as a springboard into judgment. They kind of lowercase the God loves you and they uppercase the God hates your sin, right? God loves you, but he hates your sin. And they're sitting around and they're pointing fingers at all of the sinners, right? Some people use it in that way. Some people uh, use this with the motivation of um, permissiveness. God loves you. Listen, he loves you. Yeah, he doesn't like the sin thing, but he loves you, your authentic self. He loves you for who you are, so you don't have to really change anything about you because he loves you, right? And then that leads to more of this permissive excuse of sin. So a lot of context, a lot of motivations that this phrase is used in. And I think we have to start at the the most basic question. Is it true? Is the phrase, God loves the sinner but hates the sin, is that a true phrase? Is it a true aphorism? And really, whenever we come across any question like this from culture or a question of uh, doctrine or a question of the Bible, um, 
our first move should always be to see what God's word has to say about it. That should be our absolute first move, whether it's a question from culture or of doctrine or theology, what does God's word say about it? And it's not only important about our topic for today, but every topic that we're going to be going through as as a church together. What does God's word have to say about it? So let's see what God's word has to say about this phrase. Let's tackle the first part of that phrase first. Let's talk about love, right? And I've uh, decided to outline uh, this phrase with other phrases. So the section that we're going to start first with is for the love of God. For the love of God, we're going to do a little theology of God's love, especially as it relates to the sinner. Does God love the sinner? Well, let's look at some verses. Let's start with uh, the, probably the most popular one, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, mankind, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Life. It's pretty promising, right? Seems like God loves the world, mankind, sinners alike. Romans 5 8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The, uh, Jesus brings a little bit of uh, 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 more to this uh, verse in John 15 13. He says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So let's go back to Romans 5, 8. Christ died for us while we were still sinners, and this is the greatest love, that one would lay down their life for their friends. And Jesus laid down his life for us while we were still sinners. The Bible is seeming to indicate that God demonstrates, shows love to sinners, right? And then we finally see uh, this in uh, 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. God doesn't just do loving things. God doesn't just act in love. He is Love. It is his very nature, not just an action that he does. He loves because he is love, and he is always love and will always be love, meaning he will always act in love every time, all the time. It is his nature. I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a hobbyist. Uh, I tend to rotate around several different hobbies. Uh, sometimes they change week to week, sometimes day to day. <laughs> Some are a little longer than others. Um, and maybe you remember last year, I got into the hobby of running, right? The thing about it is that I don't just do hobbies, okay? I, I, I become the hobby, okay? I didn't just do the running, I was the running, okay? I was Tommy the runner. And what do runners do? They run marathons. And so I stupidly signed up for one because that's what runners do. And I am that. I identify as the runner, right? I am my hobby. Uh, I also cycle, and I don't just cycle. It's not just something I do. I am a cycler, spandex and all, okay? That's a picture you didn't need this morning, right? (laughs) I'm that guy, all right? I'm that person who you're frustrated with as you're driving on the road. That's me. Most recently, I have got into uh, the modeling of miniatures and building them and painting them, and um, I am not just someone who does that. I am that, okay? I, you know, you're saying nerd alert. Yeah, totally, um, and I, I am that. I own that, and it's, it's basically what all my conversations consist of. I, I'm, I'm talking about it. I'm, I mean, this is, this is who I am, right? I, I am my hobbies, <laughs> So God doesn't, God doesn't just love sinners. He, he is love. It's not just something that he does. It's who he is. And unlike me, where I change hobbies every two seconds, God never changes. He is unchanging. He is love, always has been love, and always will be love. There is no change or variation in him. And so we can make the conclusion that because God is love, and acts in love all the time that he is loving and acts in love towards sinners. 
So then we have to ask the question, how does God love sinners, right? How does he love the sinner? Well, again, because God is love, it is unconditional. It is because it is who he is. It is his nature. It is without condition. It's also um, what I would call a benevolent and merciful love. A benevolent and, and merciful love. Matthew 5, 44 through 46. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So to be sons of the Father who is in heaven, to be imitating the Father who is in heaven, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This is God's love shown through his loving common grace to all people, the just and the unjust. He is providing them with common goodness and care. The sun is rising on them. He sends the rain to them because he is acting in common loving grace. But it is also a merciful love. And, and we know this because we know that the consequences of sin is death, right? Romans tells us. The wages for the wages of sin is death. Spiritual death. Separation from God for, for all eternity. But in that, we see God's patient love. In that, when the sinner sins, they don't receive the eternal punishment for the sin the moment that they sin. Because that is God's patient love, his merciful love acting towards them. He has a patient love towards them. God loves sinners um, in the way that he uh, calls them to repentance and belief in Jesus Christ. Making a way for salvation is an act of love. One, by the way, that we do not come even close to deserving. And yet he has made a way for salvation. He shows his love by calling the sinner to repentance. Romans 2, 4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It is God's loving kindness that leads us to repentance. God loves the sinner. So I think we have to also um, know that, that God also has a distinct love for his children. God's love um, is not uniform with sinners and his children. He has a distinct love for his children. And how does he love his children? Well, he saves his children. He has specific blessings for his children. He gives his children an inheritance. He helps his children. He comforts his children. He teaches and guides his children. It's kind of like us as parents, right? Like, I, as a father, listen, I love children. I love all the children. They're amazing and funny and, 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 and so innocent, and they say the darndest things, right? And I, I love all the children. But I love my children with a distinct love. I don't love all of the children in the same way that I love my children. I love my children very distinctly. They receive blessings and gifts that other children in my life do not receive because they're my children. And there is a distinct love set upon my children. You have a distinct love set upon your children. God is, is, is like that as well. He has a distinct love for his children. In fact, it's one of the problems with the statement, with the phrase, God loves sinners but hates the sin. It's because what it does is it seeks to make his love uniform, as if he loves the sinner in the same exact way as he loves his children. It is not uniform. God loves his children in a distinct way. God's love also differs from the world's love. 1 Corinthians 13 gives us kind of the, 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 the best definition that we have for godly love, right? If we go through that 
passage, we can see pretty clearly how different God's love is versus the world's love, the, the, the love that we're taught by the world, right? God's love, as we've mentioned, is unconditional. It is unconditional. All people, no matter what they do, sin or saint, it's unconditional, versus the world's love, which is very conditional, right? Only, I only love the people I like. I only love the people who I agree with. If you cross me, not only do I not love you, but I actually hate you, right? The world's love is conditional, very conditional. God's love is patient. The world's love is impatient. God's love is long-suffering. And I think all, all we have to do is look at the divorce rates in our world today to realize that the love of the world is not a patient love. As soon as I'm not getting what I want, I'm out. It is impatient. It is not long-suffering. God's love is selfless. The world's love is selfish. What can I get? What have you done for me today, right? It is selfish. Where God's love is, what can I give you in my goodness and mercy? God's love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. The world's love, as we've seen very recently, does in fact rejoice in wrongdoing, sometimes going to the extent of saying that the greatest love is loving wrongdoing. God's love rejoices in the truth. The world's love does not rejoice in the truth. It rejects the truth. It's offended by the truth. So it's a very different love, God's love, than the world the worldly love that we have grown and learned from the world. So I think when we see things like that, we have to ask ourselves a question. When I look at my life, when you look at your life, whose love am I imitating more closely in my everyday life? The love of God or the world's love? In that list, am I, am I, am I, am I lining up more with, with how God loves or am I lining up more with how the world shows love? So God loves sinners. Do we agree with this? Do we see this in God's word? It's an okay statement. God loves sinners. All right, good. Let's move on to the next part of the phrase. Let's talk about hate. That's a phrase you want to hear in church, right? <laughs> Let's talk about hate right now, guys, all right? Uh, the title of this next section is a love-hate relationship. A love-hate relationship. This is the second part of the phrase. So we have God loves sinners. Now we have but God hates sin. Ask the question, does God hate sin? Well, let's see what the Bible has to say about this particular issue. Proverbs 6, 16 through 18. There are six things that the Lord loves, no, hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. And those are haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, and feet that make haste to run to evil. What are the things being described here? Sin, right? These are sinful actions. That's what's being described here. And it says that God hates these things. Psalm 45, 7 says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness or sin. God loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Deuteronomy 12, 31, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way for every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. This is idolatry, talking about idolatry and bringing false worship, the way that they would worship their false gods, bringing that into the worship of God. Deuteronomy 16, 22 is very similar to this. You shall not plant any tree as an Asherah beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make, and you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord, your God, hates. Psalm 5, 4 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. What is the opposite of delight? It seems to indicate that God hates sin, right? God's word seems to indicate that God hates sin. Why, does, why? Why does God hate sin? Well, it's because God is holy. It's because God is pure. It's because God is righteous. It's because God is just. And sin is in direct opposition 
to his very nature of being holy and righteous and just and pure. And God hates things that are contrary to his nature. I think he also hates it because of its effect on his creation as well. It separates us from him. It deceives us to follow the world instead of him. It seeks to destroy us and it seeks to enslave us to itself. And it blinds us to the truth of God. It's why he hates sin. It's opposite his nature. My nature, by the way, um, you probably don't know this about me either, is um, I am always warm. Always. You're like, not always. Always. In fact, my uh, kids affectionately call me the furnace. <laughs> like whenever they're cold, they just snuggle up close to me because I am literally always warm. I'm warm right now. I'm sweating. Always. All the time. Never am I not. I am doesn't matter what temperature it is. Could be 100 degrees, I'm warm. Could be 30 degrees, I'm warm, right? Always happening. It is, it is like my very nature. Maybe something's wrong with me. I, I don't know. Only the Lord knows. But I know that I'm always warm. And, and here's the thing about that is I actually um, hate the cold. I hate being cold. Hate it. I do not like it. I, I, I do not like feeling cold whatsoever, ever. I hate being cold. Cold. It is opposite to my nature. Um, and so you're probably wondering, like, why on earth do you live in Illinois? Like, <laughs> it's cold here. Yes, it is. And I hate it. All right? I hate the cold. And uh, if, we, if we could plant a church, like, you know, in, in where it's warm, that would be amazing. But here's the thing. Um, my wife is actually the opposite of me. She is always cold. <laughs> and she hates the warm. And so uh, we will never go uh, because my Bible tells me that I am to love my wife and lay myself down for her. And so I will remain here and continue to hate the cold because it is opposite of me. He hates what's opposite to his nature in the same way sometimes that we do. And so we see that God, uh, it seems to indicate in the Bible that God loves the sinner but hates sin. Right? We see that. So what's the problem with this phrase? What's the, what's the problem with, with this phrase, God loves the sinner but hates the sin? Well, first, it's, it's an oversimplification. It's an oversimplification. We just saw um, how much of an oversimplification is by going just through a couple of verses about God's love and, and his hatred of sin, right? It oversimplifies God's love and his displeasure of, of sin. It also assumes some things about God's love. Again, we talked about that. That it is uniform for the sinner and the saint. The other problematic thing about this phrase is that it is misleading and it is incomplete. This phrase, do you notice? God loves the sinner but hates the sin. It seeks to separate the sinner from the sin, right? Right? God loves the sinner, but hates the sin. It is seeking to separate those two things, and that is not a separation that God makes. On the last day, on judgment, when God is going to judge the wicked, is he taking and just judging the sin and throwing the sin into hell? No, who is being judged? The sinner. God does not make distinction between sinner and sin. He judges the one who is guilty. He judges the, the sinner and sin. He does not separate him. In fact, the most quoted verse in the Bible, by the Bible, I don't know if you know, but the Bible tends to quote itself pretty often, and this is the most quoted verse in the Bible, by the Bible, and it is where God reveals his love of who he is to Moses. If you remember the story uh, Moses went up to the mountain and received the Ten Commandments, and while he was away, the people were like, where's Moses? He's been gone for too long. Uh, High priest Aaron, make us, uh, make us a god, because Moses is gone. And, and Aaron does. He makes them a golden calf, and they worship this false god. While Moses is up receiving uh, the Ten Commandments, Moses comes down. He sees what's happening. He breaks the commandments, right? Uh, he throws them down. Then he has to go back up on the mountain later, and receive them again. And, and while this is taking place, after all of that sin has happened by Israel, 
Moses goes up to the mountain again and God reveals himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. We see God's love on display. This is who God is. He is slow to anger, patient in his love, steadfast, unmoving in his love, faithful, loyal in his love. And and who is he speaking this about? He's He's speaking this right after the golden calf worshipers, the sinners who have turned away from God to false gods, those who worship golden calves. He's sharing this is what his love is like, that he is abounding in steadfast love and patient, slow to anger. But here's the end of it. But who will by no means clear the guilty. So God's love, God loves. Other translations say, um, but will by no means allow the guilty to go unpunished. God loves, but he does not allow the guilty to go unpunished. The guilty person will be judged and will not be saved from God's wrath. God does not separate sin from sinner on the day of judgment. This is so important to us, church, because when we say phrases like this to people, it can mislead them into robbing them of the warning of judgment and wrath. It can mislead them into thinking that there's going to be a separation of their sin and the them, the sinner. But the only thing, listen to me, the only thing that can separate sin from sinner is the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. That is it. Not a phrase, not an aphorism. The only thing that can separate sin from sinner is the forgiveness offered by Jesus Christ. And so I think we have to actually ask a pretty uncomfortable question as we're walking through this, love the sinner, hate the sin. We also have to ask the question of, does God hate sinners? It's a pretty controversial subject. Does God hate sinners? Let's look at what God's word has to say about this as well. Proverbs 6, this is the end of um, 16 through 18. This is Verse 19, right? So six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, lists off sinful actions. Then it says, a false witness who breathes out lies and the one who sows discord among brothers. Do you see the shift happening in the verse? It's not just now the sinful action. It is the one who does the sinful action. Psalm 5, 4, we saw this part. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Not evil, evildoers. Even more harshly, Psalm 11:5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Seems to indicate that God hates the wicked. Now, there are are three views on this, and I want to share them with you. Um, The first view is that this is something called metonymy. So metonymy is an exaggerated statement or, uh, um, or sorry, metonymy is a a figure of speech in which um, a word is substituted for another word that it is closely associated with, right? So, Um, An example of a metonymy is like if we said, the White House spoke today on taxes, right? Did the White House actually speak? No, we understand that to be a substitute for the presidential administration, right? And so some people believe here in the verse that the word sinner is a metonymy for the word sin. That the word sinner is a replacement, a metonymy, a figure of speech for the word sin, And so God still just hates sin, right? That's the metonymy view on this. There's also a view that this is hyperbole. Hyperbole is the exaggerated statement or claim uh, that is not meant to be taken literally, right? Um, Example of hyperbole, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, right? 
I could not eat a horse. It's an exaggerated claim, uh, not meant to be taken literally. And so some people actually believe that the word hate is hyperbole. It is exaggerated. God is just really angry. God is just really mad. Don't you see how mad he is about sin? Or they say, well, God just prefers righteousness over sinfulness. He, just, he prefers one more than the other. This is, this is hyperbole. That's the second view. And the third view is the plain reading of the text. This is what the text says at face value, that God indeed does hate sinners. And so I want to be completely transparent with you, I, I, and, and which viewpoint I tend towards. Um, I tend towards the, the plain reading of the scripture, and, and I want to tell you why. Um, I just have a little bit of, uh, I have too many problems with metonymy and with hyperbole. Um, m- hyperbole, for example, we actually have a, a perfect example of this in Psalm 45.7. This is, this is one of the problems, is that through the Psalms, what's happening, the psalmists are contrasting two things, wickedness and righteousness, right? The wicked and the righteous. He's making this contrast, and he's saying, how, how, how does God feel about this? How should we feel about this? And he's making these contrasts. And so the hyperbole people would say, well, the hate is not, is not the word. It's hyperbole. It just means he's really angry. And so if this is hyperbole, then what are we to do with that word? If this is exaggerated, is this also exaggerated? Does God not actually love righteousness? Does he not actually love the righteous? So if this is hyperbole, then that must be hyperbole. That's why I have a, a problem with that. It's the same thing with metonymy. And so I tend towards the plain reading of the text. And I think something that might be helpful in this is, is to um, mention that God doesn't hate like we hate. Do you know that? In the same way that God doesn't love in the way that we love, God doesn't hate in the way that we hate. Our hate is filled with sinful implication, sinful desire. God's hate is pure. He is pure and holy. No blemish in him whatsoever. And so really, in, even in the Psalms, what the psalmist is doing is um, when he says sinner and when he says righteous, the righteous person or the sinner, these really are titles over people's lives. I believe that they're titles over certain types of people's lives. The righteous person is a person who has trusted in God, who is following God. That is the righteous person because we know that the Bible tells us that no one is righteous, no, not one. And so what could possibly be making this person the righteous person? Well, it's only God, right? And so this is the title over their life as one who follows God and walks with God, the righteous Whereas the sinner, this is also a title over someone's life. And this is the person who has rejected God completely and continues to do so until the end. This is the sinner. So you have the righteous and the sinner and God loves righteousness and hates the sinner, the sin. And this hate is is an intense disapproval of a quality of a person, namely their rebellion and their sinful heart. It is an intense disapproval of their rebellion and sinful heart. I think that Hosea 9.15 does a really great job of showing us the beauty um, through some pretty wonderful poetry of God's love and hate. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them because of their wickedness, because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. Hosea actually shows the relationship of God's love and hatred through this beautiful um, kind of poetic language. In in Hosea 11, it it shows that God raised Israel lovingly as a son. But then that son uh, took advantage, turned away, rebelled against God, despised God, turned towards other things, took advantage of God's love, and this angers God, stirs up hatred in God, and he seeks to punish Israel, to destroy them. But then he is heartbroken. And it says in Hosea 11, how could I give you up, Ephraim? How could I hand you over, O Israel? Let's just personalize that for a moment, right? Let's personalize this. God raised us lovingly. He created us lovingly, fearfully, and wonderfully created us. 
But then we have rebelled against God. We have taken advantage of his love and we have despised him and rejected him and turned from him toward the world. And this angers God. Our wickedness angers God and he seeks to punish us, to give us our just punishment. Then he is heartbroken. How could I give you up, Tommy? How could I hand you over, Tommy? Hosea 11 says his heart recoils within him and he is moved by his loving compassion to not destroy. It goes on in Hosea to call them to repentance and to receive God's forgiveness. Do you see the beauty in that? Do you see the beauty of God's love? When we have turned away rejected his love. Yes, this angers God. He hates wickedness. And he is heartbroken over it. But his heart recoils inside and he is moved by his compassionate love. And he calls us to repentance and to receive his forgiveness. It's beautiful. It is a beautiful picture. And you might be wondering, well, how, how does God do this? Like, how, how can God balance these two things that seem to be opposite? He says in Hosea 11, after he says all of this, kind of as though, how can I do this? He says, for I am God and not a man. <laughs> I am God and not a man. I do not love like you love or hate like you hate. I am not a man, I am God. He says, the holy one among you, the perfect one, the unblemished one, the pure one. And so how can God perfectly love and hate simultaneously? It is because he is God and not a man, the holy one among you. So this statement, how, how, do, we, how do we live out the principles of this statement? What is the Christian ethic of this statement? What, what should we do with this? We've learned about God's love and his hate of sin, and what do, what do we do with this? Well, this next section is just called, Just Do It, TM. Don't want to get in trouble. How do we live this out? Well, let me start by, by saying how, um, how we typically see this lived out in the wrong ways. Uh, the wrong ways that we see this being lived out is uh, sometimes on the two extremes. On the one extreme, like we said before, there's the people who use this phrase or this ethic to cast judgment upon other people, right? The self-righteous. I'm just going to stand over here and I'm going to point my finger at all of the sinners and tell them how bad they are and yeah, God loves you, but he hates your sin. And so when they use this phrase that God loves you or I love you, but God hates the sin or I hate the sin, what they actually are saying that I hate you and uh, God hates you and God hates your sin and I hate your sin, right? This is the self-righteous person. Expecting somehow for the unbelieving world to act like believers. Impossible. And casting judgment upon them, standing in the seat of God, being judgmental, self-righteous, um, I, I tend towards this. I struggle with self-righteousness all the time, especially when I see evil in the world and wit- wickedness. And so here's what I say to myself, is, is I say, love the sinner, hate the sin, and hate my own sin more. Love the sinner, hate, abhor what is evil, but hate my sin more. Hate my own sin. Before I go around pointing out the speck in other people's eye, I need to remove the log from my own eye and not become self-righteous and judgmental. The other side of this, the other extreme that we see this being lived out more, I think pretty commonly now, is the, is the conforming Christian. The conforming Christian. And when they say love the sinner, hate the sin, what they're really saying is love the sinner and excuse the sin. Or love the sinner and in sometimes extreme cases, love the sin as well. Listen, they're just being their authentic self and God loves them and, and I love them and so they're, they're, they can do, you know, they, they need to continue to be themselves. They don't need to change who they are. I don't care what the Bible says. God loves them and they don't need to change. 
It's an excuse of the sin. It is a conforming of the Christian. And they tend to bring up Jesus in this conversation. Well, don't you see Jesus went and hung out with sinners and he loved sinners and he, they use the word, affirmed sinners. But here's the piece that I think is missing from that is that whenever Jesus went and hung out with sinners and loved sinners, he did indeed do that, amen? He did do that. But what did he do? He called them to repent. (laughs) He called them to repent. And Jesus wasn't the one who conformed to what they were struggling with. They are the ones that walked away changed by Jesus. And too much we see the conforming Christian happen in our world in Christianity today. Where we excuse sin and conform even to sin. We should love people, amen? This is the New Testament, cruciform, Christian ethic. Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says to love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. We are to love people in the way that God loves them. Patient, kind, not envious or boastful, not rejoicing in wrongdoing, but rejoicing in the truth. Right? We are to love like God, our Father, loves. We are to love people. And we are to abhor what is evil. Hate wickedness in the world. Let's add this part to the end. Let's also love the justice of God. Love the justice of God. It is a perfect and holy justice that is going to come and judge the wicked And in his perfect justice, the the guilty will not be cleared. The wicked will not be cleared. We can actually love God's justice. Did you know that? We can love God's justice. On the day where he will come and he will destroy wickedness and he will set things all right. That is a thing that we can love and plead for God, may your justice come in our wicked world today. We can love his justice, and we can love people, and we can abhor what is evil, because we should be like our Father in heaven. And so, I don't think that we need this phrase. I think that we should abandon the phrase because it is too much of an oversimplification. It is too misleading. It is too incomplete. And and, and to be honest with you, it is ineffective. It is ineffective. In fact, I'm going to give you an example, probably the most common example that you and I see uh, in this modern day is um, we see Christians using this phrase with people who struggle with SOGI issues. If you don't know what SOGI is, S-O-G-I, sexual orientation, gender identity. Okay, we see this phrase used to them all the time. God loves you, but he hates the sin, right? We see this all over social media, all over the place. And it is completely ineffective, (laughs) completely ineffective. Do you know why it's ineffective? Because if you have ever talked with someone who struggles with soji issues, you will know that, they, that it is not just something that they do, an action that they do. They believe that it is truly who they are. So a person who is struggling with homosexuality is not just acting in homosexuality. They believe that it is who they are. They believe that they were born that way. They believe that... Uh, the. Uh, uh, gender identity. They, they do not believe that it's just something that they do. They believe that it is truly who they are. And so when they hear the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin, all they hear is that God hates them and that you hate them because they do not separate and make the distinction between sin and sinner. It is ineffective completely. And so we should, we should throw the phrase out that is my conclusion of, 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 of our time. Wow, that took a really long time to just say that. Um, <laughs> we should ditch the phrase and we shouldn't replace it with nothing. Here's what we should replace it to, and this is gonna blow your mind. We should replace it with preaching the gospel. Because I think that most people use this phrase as a substitute for the gospel. They say, I shared Jesus today. I told them that God loves them and he hates their sin. And they use it as a replacement for the gospel. Listen to me, this is no replacement for the gospel. And we should abandon this phrase 
and we should preach the gospel. Some people want to use this phrase because they want to do some PR work for God, right? We, they, want, they want to up God's image in the world. We want to make God look better somehow to the, to the culture. Well, if I preach the gospel, it's going to be offensive. Yes, the gospel is offensive. The gospel is absolutely offensive. Now listen, hear me. You don't have to be more offensive than the gospel, right? Like you don't have to go over the top in offense to the gospel. The gospel by itself is offensive. Matthew 10, 22, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Why will we be hated by all? Because we're preaching the message that Jesus preached. And Jesus was hated by the world, and so we will be hated by the world because it is offensive to the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is offensive. Some people are like, well, I just want to use this nice phrase because I don't want, like, you know, they, the, the people, the world, they, they view the gospel as, 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 it's so foolish to them. They don't understand it. They don't get it. Yeah. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly or foolish to those who are perishing, but to us, listen to this, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is foolish and folly to the world, but to those who are being saved, the gospel is the power of God. And listen to me, as we are sharing Jesus with people, we cannot rob them of the power of God in the gospel. We must share and preach the gospel with them. This is the power of God. And so this topic, I know, it it leads to so many questions. So many, hundreds, maybe thousands of questions of how do I operate in love and abhor evil? And so what do I do with these these questions that I've had? Because I I, want to love my uh, people who are struggling with the soji issue. And and do I go to the wedding? and, and, And do I... This person who's stuck in sin, do I hang out with them and do I spend time with them? Or or what do I do with that? There's so many questions that come up in this topic of how do I love them, abhor what is evil, and love the justice of God. And there's no cookie cutter answer that I can give you because most of the questions that operate in this place are something called the diaphora. They're indifferent. God doesn't speak directly to it and we need to use the wisdom of God to decide and find out what we should be doing in these certain difficult situations. And I want you to know that we are going to uh, go through the topic of sexual orientation and gender identity in one of our sermons. I know that uh, you probably want so much more of, let's keep talking about this, right? But these, these sermons are, are meant to be a primer into these topics, a starting place into these topics to be helpful for us to move forward in answering these questions in our life. And so I want to leave you with Um, a couple of principles of how I go about making decisions that are complicated, cultural issues. How do I start to wrestle through these questions and things and issues? How do I do that? Well, first we do it biblically. We do it biblically. What does God's word say about it? Does God's word speak directly to it? What does God's word say? Are there principles in God's word that I can pull out and apply to this situation or this question? We need to first see what God's word says, biblically, and then we need to approach this convictionally. What am I personally convicted of? In my reading of God's word, how is the Holy Spirit convicting my heart in certain questions and issues? Praying about it, God, is this the right conviction to have? How should I handle this situation? Would you convict my heart one way or the other? It is a personal conviction. Listen, I have these, you have these. There are weddings that I will do and there are weddings that I won't do as a a pastor because I have personal convictions about them. We need to handle them biblically, we need to handle them convictionally and then here's the last thing, we need to handle them communally. Inside of community, we shouldn't be thinking about these things uh, in isolation, in our bed, at home, by ourselves. We should be bringing these questions and topics to our community, to others who love God, because there is wisdom in the multitude of counselors, Proverbs says. So we bring them to our community, not only for wisdom, but also so that we can see how my actions are going to be read by my brothers and sisters. Remember, a diaphora, indifference. 
Will this lead my brother and sister to sin? Will my actions in this lead my brother and sister into sin? Or will this cloud the gospel to the one I'm trying to reach it with? Will it cloud the gospel in their life, my actions on this particular subject? We need to handle it biblically, convictionally, and communally. And these are hard questions. And we need to wrestle together with all of these questions. And I'm thankful that we're going through this as a church to start to wrestle through these questions together as a community and continuing to do so. And even though this is just a starting place, I'm hoping that God will do a wonderful work in us and in our church, in this area and in many others, but let us love people, let us abhor what is evil, and let us love the justice of God, amen? Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for your word and its instruction to us. God, we're so thankful for your love, which is so vast and amazing. It's almost incomprehensible. It is, in a lot of ways, incomprehensible. And so, Lord, we're so thankful for your love. And, Lord, would you help us to love like you? Would you help us to love people like you love people? And, Lord, would you also, at the same time, help us to abhor what is evil, what is wicked? Lord, would we pray and plead for your justice, your perfect, pure, holy justice, your righteous justice to come to make all things right, to wipe out wickedness from among us. Lord, it grieves our heart to see the wickedness in our world, and so, Lord, may your justice come. And, Lord, as we live here on earth and interact with others, even though they may not agree with us, or think the same as us, Lord, would you give us a heart just to love them, to be kind and patient with them, but to also speak truth to them in love and with grace. We need your help with this, Lord. It is not easy in our culture today to to live this Christian ethic, but Lord, would you help us to be like your son, Jesus, who did this perfectly? Give us the strength and the courage to do it, Lord. We love you. We thank you for our time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org. Tune in again next week for another edition of the Harvest Bible Chapel podcast.